you may know that uh, John was the only one of the 12 to reach old age, um, the only one of the 12 apostles to not be martyred. All the rest of the gang, Peter and Andrew and James and Bartholomew and Thaddeus and all the rest of them, they'd all gone off uh, proclaiming the kingdom and planting churches and preaching the gospel. And one by one by one, they had all been killed, uh, martyred. Some of them were stoned, some of them were crucified as their Lord was, some of them were beaten to death with sticks, some of them were, Simon Zealot was sawn in two, according to tradition. All except John, uh, who was the only one who lived to be an old man. And so by the point, uh, the time he got to the end of his life, uh, the other Gospels had been written, Matthew, Mark and Luke, They'd all uh, written what they had to say uh, about Jesus. And there's what's called sometimes the, the synoptic gospels. Sin, like being in sync, uh, and optic, like the opticians, to do with seeing. So they, they see together. They've kind of got a similar perspective, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They've got their own particular angle, but they've got a similar perspective. So by the time John came to write his gospel, at the end of his life, um, he didn't want to cover the same ground, and there's no point doing that. Others have already said what they've got to say. He, having spent a whole lifetime, he met the Lord Jesus as a young man. He'd been best friends with the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He'd had a front row seat to all the extraordinary things that Jesus said and did. And he'd spent a lifetime turning it over and reflecting on it. So when he came to write his gospel, actually, it was quite unique. And so he tells us at the end of it, if you've got John 20, verse 30 there, it says where it says the purpose of John's gospel. He actually explains to us why he's written. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. They're recorded elsewhere. 34 other miracles were written in um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Plenty of other signs. But these are written, he says, that you may believe. And so John's gospel is in two halves. Um, The second half of it is all about the cross. It's all about the Last Supper, the upper room, uh, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, and then Jesus' burial and his resurrection. The whole of the second, it's basically in two halves. The second half is all about the cross. The first half is a series of incidents which John says he could have chosen so much to tell us But he's chosen these particular things to build a case to tell us that Jesus is the Messiah so that we could have faith like he has had. And the first half of the Gospel actually includes seven signs. And we have just read the first one. If you've still got your finger, hopefully, in John chapter 2, it says in in verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the seven signs through which Jesus revealed his glory. And so what we're going to do over these next seven weeks uh, in the run-up to Easter is we're going to take these seven signs one by one and work our way through them and follow what Jesus is saying because he doesn't call them miracles, he he calls them signs. In other words, they point to something, they've got something to say. And uh, so we're going to begin this morning by looking at this first of the seven, Jesus turning water into wine. Now, I don't know about you, whether you're like this, but um, Hannah, uh, my, my wife who was just up here talking about kids' stuff a moment ago, if you know Hannah, um, you may know that she is, um, uh, if she's hosting, if she's in charge of the catering, there will definitely be enough. 
That's to put it mildly. I say basically, if we're ever sort of cooking or having people around or something like that, um, she, if she's in charge of the catering, will make sure normally there's probably at least twice as much food and drink as we actually need. I mean, she's got better uh, over the years, but there's a line from um, something that Nigella Lawson, the famous TV chef, wrote about... She, Nigella Lawson describes herself as being haunted by the spectre of under-catering. And so Nigella Lawson always over-caters. Well, Hannah is haunted by the spectre of under-catering. When, when we got married, we had our wedding, it was in, uh, we did it all ourselves. it was on my brother-in-law's farm, and so Hannah and I had quite a healthy disagreement about how much wine to order, uh, and um, I think if she'd have had her way, we would probably would have been swimming in wine. In the end, we came to a compromise, which was a bottle ahead, which I have to say, I mean, I sort of thought, well, given the fact that we've got five barrels of beer, and goodness knows what other sort of wine and gin and all sorts of things like that happening as well, a bottle of the head was probably safe that we weren't going to go over. In the end, of course, um, we don't say I told you so in our family, but um, we, we did not drink um, a bottle of wine each. Um, you'll be relieved to hear we drank about half that. Um, but at this wedding... Hannah's worst nightmare came true. They ran out. And in the ancient world, at a wedding where they would last up to a week and where the whole village was invited and where your hospitality was an incredibly important part of your, you know, your social standing and so on, running out of wine. This was a serious catastrophe um, that could bring shame upon a family. Um, there's been some speculation that maybe it was one of Mary's relatives who was being married. And so perhaps she was especially keen to preserve their family's honour, which is why in verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother sidles up to Jesus, they've got no more wine. And uh, Jesus originally, initially shrugs off the question in verse 4, woman, he says, the footnote explains down at the bottom of the page that he's not being disrespectful, um, but nevertheless, he's been quite curt, isn't he? Why do you involve me? Jesus replies, my hour has not yet come. And yet, his mother persists. You can almost see the twinkle in her eye, can't you, in verse uh, 5, where his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. He'll be able to sort, the, sort us out. And actually, Jesus does go on to save the day in spectacular fashion. I mean, look at verse 6. Six stone water jars each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Now, picture one of those big water butts that you collect rainwater off your shed. That's, you know, 100 litres or 120 litres. Six of those, you know, that is a lot of wine. By my maths, maybe a sort of 130-odd bottles worth in each of those six jars. 800 bottles of wine. I mean, we had 300 people at our wedding, which I thought was quite a lot. Bottle ahead, 300 bottles. We drank 150. I mean, 800 bottles of wine is a ludicrous quantity, isn't it? And since the master of the banquet in verse 10 um, sums up what happened with these famous words that Jesus saved the best for last, uh, I guess it's safe to assume that Jesus, you know, he didn't wheel out the 599 plonk from Lidl that, uh, that Hannah and I um, served. This must have been the best wine anybody had ever drunk. The question is, why? Why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus turn the water into wine? I mean, was it just to get his mum off his case? Um, you know, was he particularly concerned about the honour of the family? Did he want to sort of save the day for them? Was, he, you know, was Jesus haunted by the spectre of uh, under-catering? 
Was this just a clever trick? Well, remember, John says at the end of his gospel that he's hand-selected these seven signs specifically to point to something about Jesus, to tell us who he is. And verse 11 says, this was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. So the sign that Jesus did of turning the water into wine, it wasn't an end in itself, it pointed to something. And as I've been pondering this this week, um, I think that this sign points to Jesus' glory in, in the three chapters of the history of the world. The three great chapters of the history of the world are, are the creation, chapter one. God has made the world. God has redeemed the world because the world needs saving and we all need saving. And so the chapter of redemption at the cross of Calvary and the, the final chapter, which is yet to happen, of restoration. And and this sign points to the fact that Jesus is the creator. He's the author of creation, as we sung in that first song. He's the redeemer. He's the one who, by his blood shed, provided redemption for our forgiveness. And he one day will be the restorer of all things. So first of all, it points back to the fact that Jesus is the creator. Now, at this wedding, what did Jesus do? He created. He, He created, he turned H2O... I got an E for my chemistry A-level, but I know that much, that H2O is the symbol for, for water, into whatever the chemical symbol for wine is. You know, but that is impossible, isn't it? Unless you're the one who can create something out of nothing. Now, one of the interesting things about John's Gospel, one of the differences between John and the synoptic Gospels, is that in John's Gospel, to start his story of Jesus, he does, the synoptics start with uh, Christmas, don't they? They begin at the Nativity, with shepherds and wise men and Mary and Joseph and the angels and so on. Well, John, that's already been covered by the time John writes his Gospel. Don't need to go there again. So to start his story, he goes even further back, if you've got it there, chapter 1, verse 1. Where does John begin his Gospel? He begins with three very, already very famous and evocative words in the beginning. And those who are familiar with the Hebrew Bible are going, what? Those, you know, what's John saying here? He's taking us all the way back to the beginning and saying, in the beginning was the Word, like we just sung, you're the Word of God, the Father. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, Jesus, the Word, was with God in the beginning. And then this amazing verse 3, through him all things were made. And just in case we missed the point, without him, nothing was made that has been made, including everything, excluding nothing, including this wine which Jesus has just created. And then what happens, if you're familiar with Genesis chapter 1, it starts off in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then it goes through the days, doesn't it? Well, that's what John does. Look at verse 29, the next day. Verse 35, the next day. Verse 43, the next day. And there was evening and there was morning. The next day. And then chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, Jesus performs an act of creation. On the third day in Genesis chapter 1, God creates the water and the fruit. And here, John is saying, This guy is the guy who did that. He's the creator of the entire universe. I don't know whether to include this bit, but I mean, as I've 
some people have got a bit of a problem with the idea of creation. How did God create the world? Did he create it millions of years ago? Was it a few thousand years ago? I'm preaching this evening at Ebenezer um, Chapel on Union Street. I bet most of the people down at Ebenezer Chapel uh, believe that the world was created somewhere between six and 10,000 years ago. And I bet that probably most of us here would go, that's ridiculous, the world was created millions of years ago. And people have disagreed about that, and Christians have got a different, you know, different views about when did God create the world, how did he create it? I've sort of pondered that quite a lot, and I, uh, I don't know, I wasn't there. Um, but Jesus was, and one of the th- ways that I've tried to understand this is, po- could it be both? How old was this wine? that Jesus created. I bet this must have been the finest, most vintage wine. You know, say the wine was 30 years old. Well, I bet we could have probably, you know, done a scientific analysis and sent off for a sample and it could have come back and told us exactly what grape it was, what vineyard it grew on, when it was made. So how old was it? Was it 30 years old or was it five minutes old or was it both? And if God created the whole universe... You know, if God wanted to make trees and plants and rivers and fields and mountains and human beings, and he made a tree and we chopped it down, wouldn't there have been all the rings through it, despite the fact that it was only made that day? And if he made Adam, couldn't he have had a bone structure that would have told us that he had all of the development of a fully grown man? I don't know. I, I just wonder whether the world well, It could be old, it could be young, we don't know. But Jesus here performed an act of creation... It wasn't just a clever trick, it was a sign to show that he's the one by whom all things were made and without whom nothing was made that has been made. Points us back to the beginning, in the beginning, to the creation. But secondly, it points forward. It points forward from the perspective of the guests at the wedding, but back to us point forward to the hour of Jesus' redemption, to the cross. Wine, as we're about to remind ourselves in just a moment when we gather around the Lord's table, is obviously deeply theologically significant. Um, And when Mary tried to persuade Jesus to get involved with the wine in verse 4, look what he says. Verse 4, Jesus replies... My hour has not yet come. Now the hour, if you read through John's Gospel, it's a repeated theme. It comes, keeps coming back. Jesus keeps talking about the hour. It hasn't come yet. It hasn't come yet. There's a time when they try and say to him, look, he's in the villages. They say, well, look, why don't you go up to the city? You get a much bigger and better audience with more people in the city. And Jesus says, no, 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 my hour has not yet come. There will come a time when he does go up to the city. Or there's another point where they try to seize Jesus, try to arrest him, and he, but it, John says, no, 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 they couldn't do it because his hour had not yet come. There will come a time when they will seize him, they will arrest him, but his hour hadn't happened yet. And this is the first of many references in John's Gospel to the hour. What hour is he talking about? Well, it's only in the upper room when we get to chapter 17 of John's Gospel that Jesus finally says, after he's just shared another cup of wine, Father, Now the hour has come for the Son to be glorified. The hour that Jesus is referring to in verse 4, that was to take place on Good Friday. And here, right at the beginning of John's book, 
wine is poured out in anticipation of the climax of the gospel when Jesus will take another cup of wine and he will explain the significance and he will say, this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The blood of the new covenant. Jesus didn't turn this water into any old drink. It wasn't water into gin or beer. It was water into wine, the new wine of the new covenant because the old covenant didn't work. Look at verse 6, at what Jesus made this wine in. Verse 6, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. These were the jars which were involved in the process by which the Jewish people were to be made clean in the sight of God. Ceremonial washing, to get right before God, to be redeemed. Well, those jars were about to become obsolete because the, all the old way of doing things, all the old covenant with all its priests and its temples and its sacrifices, they were all about to be fulfilled and superseded by Jesus' once and for all sacrifice, the shedding of his own blood to make us perfectly clean, once for all, to be redeemed by the shedding of his blood. And this new wine that Jesus poured out at this wedding is an amazing sign. It points forward, it points back, not, not only back to the creation, it points forward to the hour of redemption, but it points thirdly, even further forward than that, to the ultimate restoration, the final chapter yet to be revealed. It points us forward to heaven itself when there will be another party and a lot more wine. You know, some people say about this story, what's this, what's this story really saying to us? Um, well, some people say, at the very least, it shows us that Jesus loved a good party. And isn't it just one in the eye for those who would say that uh, Christianity requires us to be teetotalers? And, you know, I sort of, my reaction to that is, well, surely it's a bit more theologically involved than that. Isn't this sign sort of deeply symbolic of the fact that Jesus was the new and better Moses? And Moses did his signs, remember, before Pharaoh, and he turned the river into blood. And isn't this a great reversal of the river turning into blood? Now the water's turning into wine, and just like the Passover pointed forward to the Eucharist and all the theology of that. Yeah, that is all probably true. But it also, I think, shows us that Jesus loves a good party. And one day there's going to be a party to end all parties. One, um, one rather quaint um, Victorian commentary I read by Bishop J.C. Ryle, who was the Bishop of Liverpool in the end of the 19th century, he wrote this about this chapter. He said, we learn from these verses, I love this, that it is lawful to be merry and rejoice. Thank goodness for that. True religion, he says, was never meant to make us melancholy. On the contrary, it was intended to increase real joy and happiness among us. The Christian who withdraws entirely from the society of his fellows and walks the earth with a face as melancholy as if he was always attending a funeral does injury to the cause of the gospel. A cheerful, kindly spirit is a great recommendation to a believer. It is a positive misfortune, he says. A positive misfortune to Christianity when a Christian cannot smile. Don't you love that? Positive misfortune to Christianity when a Christian cannot smile. But there are many reasons not to smile at the moment, aren't there? 
Yeah, quite a few people are going through really tough times. And not least the news which we shared this morning with the congregation at St Andrews. Not much smiling and a few tears happening there. Yes, we're grateful. God has made the world. Isn't it a great world we live in? Yes, Jesus has died for us. Aren't we grateful for that? He's died to make us perfectly clean, to redeem us. But nevertheless, right now, we're in pain. Real pain. But one day, everything will be restored. Everything will be made new. And when Jesus shared the cup at the Last Supper, remember what he said? He, he said, I will not drink this fruit of the vine again until I drink it with you new in the kingdom of God. See, the Bible begins with a wedding. It ends with a wedding. The wedding of Christ and his bride, the marriage supper of the Lamb, Christ and the church. And here at this wedding in Cana, in Galilee, the first of these seven signs, it points forward to the day that Isaiah longed for, that Celia read for us, the day when the kingdom will fully come to consummation, the day when all the tears will be wiped away. Hasn't happened yet, that has it? Because there are still tears here. The day when death will be swallowed up forever, the shroud that enfolds all people will be done away with, and everything will be made new. Isn't that an amazing thing to look forward to? Let me just read something else that John wrote. John wrote the book of Revelation. And this was his vision of heaven that he had. This is how the Bible ends. Chapter 19 of Revelation, virtually the end of the Bible, he says this. A loud voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. That is to us. We're the bride, we're the church. We're going to be given fine linen to wear. And the angel said to me, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Yes, there is pain and tears and death. But we have all been invited to a wedding where one day everything will be made new. Everything will be restored. Aren't you looking forward to that? I am. So why did Jesus turn this water into wine? It wasn't just a clever trick. It was a sign. It was a sign that pointed all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the creation of the world. Jesus is the creator. He revealed his glory in creation. It pointed forward to the cross, to the hour of Jesus' redemption. He revealed his glory on Good Friday. Aren't you thankful he's died for us and shed his blood? But it pointed all the way forward, ultimately, to the restoration and renewal of all things, the consummation of the kingdom of heaven and the wedding supper of the Lamb. Let's pray that we would 
do as the disciples did. To be bowled over by his glory and to believe in him. Let's pray.